Hey, we'd like to welcome you back to our current event and weekly Bible study for August 17th, 08. And we're going to go ahead and continue on with this particular study that we're doing. And I think at this point it's a, it's a good time to bring up the fact that in the Bible, the Bible doesn't give a lot of merit or accolades to people that were highly learned in the scholarly. In fact, typically it does the exact opposite. And I'm going to read a verse here that uh, confirms that. And in Acts 4, starting at verse 11, this is uh, when Peter was uh, preaching, being filled with the Holy Ghost, and he was addressing the rulers of the people and the elders of Israel. And he said, This is the stone which was set at naught of the builders, which has become the head of the corner regarding Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. Unlearned and ignorant? Oh no, they, we can't have that today. We, can't, we, we have to be scholars, we have to be seminary trained. Look at the fruit of all that. And in the Bible, Jesus, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, in, in the Word of God, typically the ones that are used are the, quote, unlearned in the ignorant. They haven't been brainwashed into a certain way of thinking. God can actually use them better because He's starting with much more of a clean slate in that regard. But if you've already had, if you've already been brainwashed, and if your faith has already been corrupted, it's, very, it's, it's a lot harder for God to use you in that regard. And that's why the, the modern day seminaries are so dangerous. And yoking yourself up with this 501 and all these licenses that, that they say you have to get. All of this stuff is unbiblical. There's no New Testament precedent for, for doing these things. And they corrupt and they leaven your ministry. To a certain extent, it will always happen. So, throughout the Bible, you look and there's example after example after example of this very same thing. You know, where, where the Word of God says how, how he used the foolish things of this Word to confound the wise. And then he talks about professing themselves to be wise, they became fools in Romans 1. The Bible says that God is going to look the, to the person that is of a meek and a contrite spirit and trembleth at his Word. Well, if you've already been convinced that there's really no true Word of God, or that it's some perverted version, don't you think that's going to affect your faith? How are you going to tremble at some perverted version that was inspired by an occultist from, a Catholic, from Catholic manuscripts that actually came out of Alexandria, Egypt. How are you going to tremble at his word? Just some things to think about. This next section is entitled, What You Have to Believe to Accept the Westcott and Hort Theory. You have to believe that the people who believed in the deity of Christ are the same people that often corrupt Bible manuscripts, if you believe Westcott and Hort. Now, if you believe Westcott and Hort, we, let's just carry this further. Do you, are you reading a modern-day version? Are you reading an NIV? Or an American Standard Bible? Or a living? Well, then you believe Westcott and Hort. You've put your faith in these occultists who've done this, the, the translation that spawned the version you're reading. What's another thing you have to believe? Well, that people who deny the deity of Christ, people that deny the deity of Christ, would never corrupt Bible manuscripts. Why do you say that? Because Westcott and Hort denied the deity of Christ. We can't even find any place where, where either, of, either of them were converted. In their thousand pages of personal letters and these types of things, not one spot can you ever find where they, were ever, where they ever gave any kind of bold salvation testimony. There was a lot of doubt in their writings about whether they were saved or not. These types of things how they embraced all these things that the Catholics did. They participated in clubs like the Ghostly Guild and the Hermes Club, where they went together and they talked to uh, the dead. Or they thought it was the dead. It's familiar spirits. So we would have to believe that, that people who deny the deed of Christ, Westcott and Hort, would never corrupt the Bible manuscripts. Well, obviously, you know, just if you do the math here. What's another thing? You have to believe that people who died to get the gospel to the world, couldn't be trusted with the Bible. All the martyrs that died, who died for the word of God, you have to, you have to believe that they couldn't be trusted. Nah. No, they just gave their life, you know, tortured, maimed. They just gave their life. That's all they did. I'm, I'm being, again, 
sarcastic here to prove a point. You also have to believe that their killers, the Catholics, could be trusted with the Word of God. Why? Because the, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, which are the underlying texts of the Revised Version of 1881, which is what spawned all the other translations that we have today, you have to believe that their killers, the Catholics, who gave us the underlying text of the Revised Version, that they could be trusted. You see how crazy this argument starts to become when, it start, when we start to expose it and unravel it? This is where the Bible talks about you know, having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reproving them. That's what we're doing today. We're reproving them. We're earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. How are we doing that? Well, what is the faith based on? What is our faith based on? The Word of God. So we earnestly contend for the faith. But by doing that, you have to defend the Word of God of which the faith is based on, right? Kind of goes hand in hand. I'm going to prove this even further later in the Bible. You have to believe that the Celtic Christians, the Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Hernicans, the Petrobrusians, the Paulicans, the Protestant churches, the Anabaptists, and the Baptists all did not have a pure word of God. You have to believe that the Roman Catholics and the 19th century rationalists did have the pure word of God. So, are Westcott and Hort infallible? I think we've already looked at that. We're going to look a little bit further. Even though many evangelicals treat the Westcott and Hort theory as proven fact, there have, there have always been serious textual scholars that challenged it. The brilliant textual scholar, Dean John Burgeon, referred to Westcott and Hort's uh, revised version as a violent recoil from the traditional text, from the majority text, and their absolute contempt for the traditional text. He refers to their theory as superstitious veneration for a few ancient documents, which is the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. Another famed textual scholar and contemporary of Westcott and Hort, F.H.P. Scrivener, wrote, quote, Dr. Hort's system, therefore, is entirely destitute of historical foundation. He does not so much as make a show of pretending to it. But then he would persuade us as he persuaded himself. Remember, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. He who trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 28:26. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17:9. So these are things that when you start to trust your own heart and your own opinions, you better really backtrack because that is not something you ever want to do. It is a phony claim to the scholarship to simply parrot the ideas of Westcott and Hort and pretend that you are superior to those who don't accept their ideas. Why would they want to accept two occultists, high-level occultist ideas? Closet Catholics. Why would they want to accept their ideas? But everybody, pretty much in the seminaries, are doing that when they embrace these modern versions. Those who wish to change the King James Bible so long greatly used of God and cherished by the English-speaking people, need to give clear reasons why. How do you know that the older, the quote, older Vaticanus and Sinaiticus manuscripts aren't corrupt manuscripts? We've already shown you that they're corrupt. Why do you believe that the evangelicals throughout the centuries were using a corrupt text? Now, Doug and I discussed this over the break. In the times of, let's say, the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, the term evangelical was not considered a bad term. It would actually be considered a Christian who was evangelizing the gospel, which is really the term it should be. But today it's got a modern-day, very, very, very liberal connotation with it. And is, is almost in like a negative way. Uh, so just understand when I say that evangelicals were dealing with a different time period. So who were Westcott and Horn? And we've, we've covered this. I'm just going to give you a little more clarification there. B.F. Westcott was born in 1825. Hort was born in 1828. They were members of the Broad Church, or High Church Party, of the Church of England. They became friends during their student days at Cambridge University. Both men wrote several books. They are best remembered for their edition of the Greek New Testament, entitled The New Testament of the Original Greek. They are most remembered for, their, for being the two most influential members of the England English Revision, Revised Version Committee, which produced the New English Translation in 1881. Scrivener thought that they exercised too much influence on the committee, 
Westcott died in 1901. Hort passed away in 1892. Both men had sons who collected their personal correspondence and who wrote biographies about them. So what did Westcott and Hort believe about the scripture? It is clear that neither Westcott nor Hort held anything even faintly resembling a conservative view of scripture. According to Hort's son, Dr. Hort's own mother, who was a devout Bible believer, Hort's own mother was a devout Bible believer, she could not be sympathetic to his views about the Bible. She brought him up better, in other words. Westcott wrote to Hort that he overwhelmingly rejected the idea of an infallibility of the Bible. Well, I could see why he'd probably say that. I mean, he went and he made his own Bible, his own, his own revision. And he knew, he knew that wasn't infallible. <laughs> so therefore, the Bible, you know, to him, is not the word of God, whatever he says it is. Hort says the same thing, and the same week in a letter to Bishop Lightfoot. Um, so in other words, Hort said the same thing in a letter to Bishop Lightfoot. When Westcott became the Bishop of Durham, the Durham University Journal welcomed him with praise that he was, quote, free from all verbal or mechanical ideas of inspiration. He was free from that thought. He wasn't encumbered. By saying that the Bible is inspired. No, he was free from that, is what they're saying there. What do they believe about salvation? Hort called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement immoral. He called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement immoral, meaning that Jesus paid our sin debt on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid our sin debt. He called that immoral. This is the kind of person that wrote the underlying text of the Bible you have if you have a modern-day version. In doing so, he sided with the normal doctrine of the high church party. It's not like having high tea, high church. I don't know. Sorry, Sorry about that. He sided with the normal doctrine of the high church party of the Church of England. The low church party was generally evangelical, and again, that was a positive thing back then, teaching salvation through personal faith in Jesus Christ. The high church party taught salvation by good works, including baptism and church membership. They were just kind of a modified version of the Catholic Church. If you think about it, they both believe you've got to get to heaven through good works, if it boils down to it. Whereas the Bible says, for you are saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So, this is just, you know... Every other religion other than true Bible-believing Christianity teaches salvation through good works. Every other religion. And in, in Islam, that may mean strapping on a nail bomb on, the, on your back and running into a, into a cafe and blowing everybody up. To them, that's a good work. To Buddhists, it may be praying to your plethora of deities. You know, in Satanism, it may be is being as evil as you can possibly be. Everybody has their different definitions of good works, but no good work can ever get you to heaven, according to the Bible, lest any man should boast. Westcott and Hort wrote many commentaries that include references to classic passages about salvation. Repeatedly, their commentary is vague and unclear. Why? The Bible's very clear. Pretty easy to figure out. You know, the Word of God is of no private interpretation. Repeatedly, their commentary is vague and unclear. Westcott taught that the idea of, pro of a propitiating God was foreign to the New Testament. No, it's not. Not unless you've perverted the very words of the living God, then it may be foreign. That, well, that's what they specialized in. That was their specialty. Perverting the words of the living God. I mean, if they walked around t-shirts, they could have t-shirts. Born to pervert the words of the living God. They could wear them proudly. You know how they have those t-shirts, you know? Anyway. He taught that salvation came from changing the character of the, one who, of the one who offended God. Ah, it's all about the person changing themselves. Salvation is an ongoing process. This is a consistent statement with his statement that a Christian never is, but is always becoming a Christian. He never is. There's no point that you're ever really saved. There's no point whereby you're really ever born again, you're be always becoming born again. What does that imply? Good works. Yeah, you just got to keep doing and doing and doing. And someday you'll earn your way there. Well, you're probably never going to earn your way there. You're going to have to spend a little time in purgatory. Or if you're a baby, limbo. 
and and you know you're gonna have to make prayers for the dead and stuff like that and the sac keep the seven sacraments and you know that type of thing. I mean that's where the logical conclusion is to that thing. Just becoming a Christian. Who else said that? C.S. Lewis said the same exact stuff. So much of what I am reading here, and where was C.S. Lewis at? He was. He was in the same part of England, Cambridge in that type of area. Maybe there was like a little bit of a conspiracy going on there. That would be an interesting study to do, to tie all this together. H.P. Blavatsky, Darwin, C.S. Lewis, Westcott and Hort. Now I understand, C.S. Lewis came afterward. Okay, But again, it's all taking place in this very same proximity of, of land in, in England. That this all kind of went down. That spawned all this. Very interesting. That's a whole other study. But, I, I mean, I've seen it over and over again. Again and again, Westcott's vague comments about salvation are easy to interpret as teaching universal salvation. What did they believe about the doctrine of Christ? It was common in the days of Westcott and Hort for those in the High Church of England who denied the deity of Christ to speak in vague terms. Well, that kind of sounds like Joel Osteen. Well, I just believe that everybody's going to go to heaven if they love God, or whatever he says. Mealy mouth. Hey, did you hear about Joel? His wife got in a fight on the uh, airplane this week, or a week ago. They, see, they were in first class. I'm not making this up. They were in first class, flying. I'm surprised he doesn't have his own jet by now. He could have avoided this whole thing if he would have just had his own jet, like some of these other evangelists do. I'm surprised he doesn't have one yet. But anyway, they were in first class. And evidently, Mrs. Osteen, sorry if I said it wrong before, Osteen, Smiley Joe's wife, who is also co-pastor of Lakewood Church. Did you know that? She was co-pastor. Yeah. Why doesn't that surprise me? Women pastors. I've done a whole study on that. You can look that one up. Biblical qualifications for a pastor. Anyway, they were on they were on the plane, and uh, evidently something there was a stain on her first class seat. She got mad, real mad, threw a gigantic fit, ended up shoving the stewardess and elbowing her in the breast. They shut the flight down for two and a half hours while they were escorted off the plane. This is I'm not making this stuff up. Now the lady, the stewardess, is turning around and suing her. I believe it's like 10 or 20% of her net worth because she... What's that? Oh, did she lose the suit? Oh, well, I'm sure they've got the best lawyers on the planet. Or maybe they paid them off on the side. I don't know. I can't be dogmatic. I'm just saying. But um, this wonderful Christian behavior, she had a stain on her first class seat. Oh, imagine the burden. Imagine the psychological scars that... that, that Joel Osteen's wife must be bearing with that stain on her first class seat. Oh, it makes you want to weep, doesn't it? But yeah, she uh, she couldn't handle it. She went into a nutty tirade and shoved the stewardess, elbowed her in the breast. And the stewardess said afterward that um, she suffered major psychological trauma. Her faith has been affected. She has hemorrhoids now. She has hemorrhoids now as a result of the stress. I'm not making this up. I couldn't believe it. I read the article like two times. I was like, no, this can't be true. I mean, obviously this lady was, you know, and, and then she said she was suing her for, it was 10 or 20% of her net worth. So it was like she had encountered a gold digger similar to herself. Or a, I shouldn't use the word gold digger because I'm not going to say she married him. I, that, that's, that's being presumptive. A, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. She met her match, in other words. They're both greedy of filthy lucre. Just put it that way. And uh, they got, you know, that was that was in the headlines this week. Setting a great example for, you know, non-Christians and uh, the body of Christ. You know, I think it's okay to go nut, nuts on flights and things of that nature. Over staying on the seat. So anyway, let's go back to this uh, little article here. It says, to cl- clearly deny the deity of Christ was to jeopardize your position... In the, in the Church of England, many high church modernists learned to speak of the deity of Christ in unclear terms as a way to avoid trouble. In other words, you had to keep up a certain appearance, lest you get in some trouble. Westcott and Hort were playing the game. 
they were open occultists. I mean, they, they had these clubs that they went to. We're going to talk about that more. And these people that they associated with were absolute, total occultists. They believed in all kind of Catholic things, but they had to keep up a certain appearance in order to avoid trouble. Many statements by both Westcott and Hort fall into the category of fuzzy, doctrinal statements about Christ. Not warm and fuzzy, but fuzzy. Westcott and Hort were brilliant scholars. But the problem is, is that they were of their father the devil, and of his works they will do. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. So they may have had a gift given to them by God, but they used it for evil. We all have that same choice every day. We can use the gifts that God gives us for evil or good. We all have that choice. So they're no different than anyone else. I'm not trying to hold them to a higher accountability than I would hold myself. They just chose to use their, their gifts for Satan's work. And now today, as we talk about this, they're burning in hell for eternity. And then they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And the blood of so many people are going to be on their hands. You know, could I compare them to Hitler? Easily. Easily, as far as the blood being on their hands. Hitler killed a certain amount of people. But I don't think Hitler, before or after, are taking as many people to hell as Westcott and Horde are. Through their false versions. Because why? Because they were much more subtle than Hitler. Hitler was out in the open, man. I'm here to promote the Aryan race. The fifth root race. I'm going to kill as many people as I can that don't live up to that. The Jews and the blacks and whoever. Westcott and Horde were... Ultimately more subtle than that. Of course, as we read this, it doesn't seem that subtle. It seems obvious and flagrant. But, they were much more subtle. And the fruit of what they did, as far as a taking to hell type of fruit, is much more subtle and deceptive than anything Hitler ever did. Pretty strong statement. Well, that's how I, that's how I, I, believe, I believe it's obvious. That's the truth. Surely they were capable of expressing themselves clearly on the doctrine of Christ if they wanted to. They were brilliant scholars. At best, they were unclear. At worst, they were modernists hiding behind the fundamental doctrinal statements of the Church of England. There are also many other areas that cause fundamental Bible believers to have serious questions about Westcott and Hort. Westcott denied that Genesis 1-3 through 3 were historically true. Hort praised Darwin and his theory of evolution. Praised Darwin? A doctrine that is absolutely diametrically opposed to the, to the creation account and to the Bible in every way, shape, and form. We evolved from a rock. Where did the rock come from? Oh, the Big Bang. Billions and billions of years ago. And then the rain rained down on the rocks. And out of, the, out of that rain formed a primordial soup. And then lightning hit it one day and formed a two-cell amoeba. And the amoeba eventually sprouted legs and came upon land and, and his gill slits went away. And he became a lizard, and that lizard eventually turned into a monkey. And then the monkey turned into Cro-Magnum Man, and then Piltdown Man, and whoever else. And it ultimately became a human. Whoa, I'm glad we got that figured out. Takes a lot more faith to believe that than what the Bible says. Yeah, my little girl Taylor just said, well, if that's the case, why can't we see that same thing happening today? Exactly. Exactly. There's no species that's, that's evolving. There's microevolution that has taken place. But not macro, where we jump species and stuff like that. It's not happening. Because it happens so slow, Brother Johnson. You just don't get it. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Both Westcott and Hort praised the Christian socialist movement. Christian socialists. Like Christian communists, kind of. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds like... Pretty valid to me. I mean, I don't know about you guys. Westcott belonged to several organizations designed to promote Christian socialism. He didn't just promote it. He belonged to organizations that promoted it. He put his feet to his theory. I mean, he acted on these things. Not only was he a member of the Ghostly Guild and the Hermes Club, two totally occultist organizations, but he was part of Christian socialist movements of the day. And this is the person you've entrusted with your Bible? You have, if you have a false version. They wrote the underlying text that spawned your version. Westcott and Hort um, belonged to several organizations designed to promote Christian socialism and served as president on one of them, which was called the Christian Social Union. 
I mean, this is, this is just getting ridiculous, isn't it? But I'm going to keep going. It's like driving the stake into the vampire's heart. I want to drive it in and I want to do it good. I really do. Because this is evil. We're driving the stake of truth into evil. Both Westcott and Hort showed sympathy for the movement to return to the Church of England. To Rome. Imagine that. That's why I say they were closet Catholics. In their own writings, you can prove that. Okay, so now they're, now they're, they're trying to get the Church of England and the Church of Rome to yoke up. Well, see, that's ultimately, they were ahead of their time. You know why? Because that's ultimately what we're going to have, right? In the one world church of Revelation, Tribulation, we're going to have a one world church. Church of England is going to be yoked up with the Church of Rome. They were just trying to be ahead of their time. Renaissance men, evidently. Both honored the rationalist philosophers of their time, like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Dr. Frederick Maurice, and Dr. Thomas Arnold. Rationalist philosophers, ungodly. Both were serious students of the Greek philosophers Plato... Plato. It's a redneck way of saying Plato. Sorry. Plato and Aristotle... <laughs> So they were, they were serious students of the Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle. Ungodly as the day is long. Oh yeah, that was okay too. Do you see how much you have to overlook on this issue? Do you think that in the modern day seminaries they're taught any of this? No. Mm -mm. There is much about teaching, the teaching of Westcott and Hort, to deeply trouble any objective Bible believer. So were they saved men? The evangelical defenders of Westcott and Hort are quick to assert that they were saved men. How could they possibly be saved men after what we just all already read? I mean, a, a tree is known by his fruit. A child, even a child is known by his doings. And they're saved men? I guess I missed the memo. Even if some of their ideas seem a little strange. Oh, yeah, just a little. Just, just a little. They remind people that both were ordained preachers of the Evangelical Church of England. Like, that matters at all. They were nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. And it's no marvel if Satan can be transformed into a minister of righteousness, or, or an angel of light, that his ministers can be transformed into ministers of righteousness. It's all they were. They were hirelings that had no true love for the sheep. However, there is no doubt that they were that there were many Church of England preachers that were not true evangelicals. The High Church Party was well known to preach salvation by works. Within the Church of England, there was a vigorous debate between true, true evangelicals and those who taught baptismal regeneration or some other system of works for salvation. In their lengthy writings, neither Westcott nor Hort ever give an account of their own conversion. Uh, the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Remember that verse? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Jesus said, you know, If you deny me before, before men, I will also deny you before the Father. Right? Yeah, he said that. Well, by them never including this in their personal writings, and nobody can ever... Isn't that the equivalent of denying Jesus Christ before men? I mean, he wasn't, they sure weren't pointing them to him. They never identified with the evangelicals of the Church of England. They were never accepted by the evangelicals in the Church of England. And they were associated with various occult figures, but never with evangelicals. Now again, evangelicals in this sense is a very positive term back then. Today it is not. So just understand, again, we have to rightly divide things. While Westcott and Hort praised evolutionists, socialists, and modernists, they were bitter, bitterly critical of evangelical soul winners. Westcott criticized the work of William Booth and the Salvation Army. Hort criticized the crusades of D.L. Moody. Hort criticized the soul winning of Methodists. Well, why? Because they're of the father of the devil and they don't want anybody going out there winning souls. The devil don't like that. And they had put on the mind of Satan instead of the mind of Christ. The mind of Satan is, is diametrically opposed to soul winning. Both criticized evangelicals. Um, neither gave, neither gave anyone any. Neither did they give anyone any reason to believe that they had ever trusted Christ as their personal savior, ever. In 1870, the English Parliament authorized a revision of the King James Bible. Two teams of translators were hired. Most translators were from the Church of England, but there were also seven Presbyterians, four Congregationalists, two Baptists, two Methodists, and one Unitarian. The translators were instructed to make as few alterations to the King James Bible as possible. 
Now this gets into the, um, the, re- the revised version of 1881. A similar committee was developed in the United States at the same time. The two committees exchanged copies of their work. Several thousand Church of England preachers signed a petition protesting the inclusion of a Unitarian on the committee, who was Dr. Vance Smith. They felt that only saved men should be involved in the translation of the Bible. Proper translation required the illumination of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Both Westcott and Hort defended Smith, the Unitarian, why wouldn't they? And lobbied for the presence for his presence on the committee. Westcott threatened to quit if Smith was not included. Westcott and Hort supplied everyone working on the committee with a private copy of their new Greek corrupted text that they had derived from the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. We've already talked about that. Hort lobbied, some would say intimidated, committee members to follow Westcott and Hort's text. In other words, it was like stacking the deck. You know, they're the ones at the head of the revision committee. They're putting all the pressure. They're giving them their own personal copy of this corrupted Greek text. It's like a kangaroo court. In other words, it's been rigged and the deck has been stacked. It's a predetermined outcome. Yeah, Doug just brought up a good point, and he brought up the point of the fact that you see how this would appeal to the pride of man? Wow, I got my own personal private copy, fresh off the presses of Westcott and Hort, these wonderful scholars in the High Church of England. I got, I got my own private copy of their new Greek text. In fact, that's what we're going to use to translate this, this new Bible version. Westcott, Hort, and Bishop Lightfoot pressured the committee to go to their mandate for doing a revision of the King James Bible. Dr. Frederick Scrivener opposed many of the changes to be made on the basis of the new Westcott and Hort Greek text. Committee meetings were referred, were referred to as a kind of critical duel between Dr. Hort and Dr. Scrivener. Arthur Hort described his father's method for describing the right reading of the text as to settle the question by the light of his own inner consciousness. See, that's how Westcott and Hort translated. By the light of their own inner consciousness. But see, in them was nothing but darkness. They were of their father the devil, and of his works they will do. They they didn't have any inner light. All they had was inner darkness. Hort was far more concerned about his feelings than he was about the textual debate over any passage. Westcott referred to the debate over textual readings as hard fighting, and a battle royal. The original chairman, Bishop Samuel Wilberforce, resigned, referring to the project as a most miserable business. In other words, it was either Westcott and Hort's way or no way. They were like spoiled brat babies that had to have their way. Well, they were commissioned by Satan to do this. I mean, they, they had to get their agenda pushed. Westcott and Hort eventually won most of the debates. After the New English Revision was published, both Scrivener and Virgin published lengthy refutations of this revision. Virgin attacked the revision strongly, calling it excursions into cloudland and blowing smoke. The people of England largely rejected this new translation. Not anymore, though, but at the time they knew. Attempts to make it the new authorized version of the Church of England met with such protests that Queen Victoria abandoned the idea. But today, these false versions are, you know, are embraced. Neither the English nor the American revision sold very well. They were both soon replaced by other versions. However, the multitude of new English versions were all based upon the same corrupt Westcott and Hort Greek text and upon the theories of Westcott and Hort. So in other words, the new, the 1881 revised version wasn't really well received at the beginning. But what it was is like Satan getting his foot in the door. And then after that kind of died down and things went by, then a whole bunch of other new versions and translations came out and they still accomplished the same thing they were out to accomplish. Their English translation failed but their principles won the day eventually. Even though evangelicals rejected the English revision and the Westcott and Hort text, it did find supporters, modernists and rationalists, both within and without the Church of England, praised their work. The, listen to this. Theosophy founder Helen Petrova Blavatsky wrote at great length in praise of their new Greek text. The founder of the theosophical movement, the one that has basically ushered in the whole 
modern New Age movement that we have today, the one that first, uh, one of the first ones that ever talked about how the ascended masters are going to come, predicted Lord Maitreya was going to come, was the inspiration for Alice Bailey and Aleister Crowley. Yes, the same person wrote in praise of the new Greek of the Westcott and Hort Greek text that underlies every single modern day Bible perversion on the market today. I, I want to make this seem real real to you today. She endorsed it. I mean, if that's not a more direct endorsement of the devil, I don't know what is. The defenders of Westcott and Hort claim that the evangelicals were too simple-minded and unlearned to understand the work of Westcott and Hort and the other English scholars. Now, we just, we just talked about that. The God, you know, it, I don't even know what else to say about that. Too simple-minded and unlearned to understand the work of Westcott and Hort. And again, it's just a total lie from the pit of hell. Actually, the people that would seek these things out, the people that would be good Bereans and search the scriptures to see if these things were so, those are the ones that would uncover this deception. But the ones that are actually too lazy to do it and are going to rely on a man or some seminary, they're the ones that are going to be deceived. The actual opposite is true. But they would have you believe, oh no, you know, Westcott and Hort were these great scholars and... Evangelicalism was presented as unscholarly after a generation. Many evangelicals began to feel uncomfortable at always being labeled as unscholarly or uneducated. I could care less what they label me as. But see, they gave in to the pressure of man, peer pressure. Remember, the fear of man bringeth a snare. Okay? So, after a while, after this was adopted into the cemeteries, seminaries, what happened is, after a generation, many evangelicals began to feel uncomfortable at always being labeled as unscholarly and uneducated. Or oh, we're being put down by those mean old Westcott and Hork guys. I tell you what, we know the solution. We'll just come on board. Yeah, that way we can be looked at as scholarly. I could care less about any of that. Some evangelical leaders began to look for ways to reconcile the historic Christian faith with the theories of Westcott and Hork. Well, there is no way. There is no possible way you can reconcile all the things we just talked about and are going to be talking about. It's impossible. These theories and the Greek text of Westcott and Hort began to find their way into evangelical seminaries, the Bible colleges on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Two, <coughs> two generations after the failure of the English revision of 1881... The theories of Westcott and Hort had become majority opinion in evangelical Bible colleges and seminaries in both the United States and England. I tell people that I believe the two main reasons that the church is in the shape that it's in started, number one, started in 1881 when this false translation came out and started leavening the seminary teachings, the word of God, undermining the Christian faith, particularly of the pastors, because they were the ones that were being seminary trained, right? And the other, and so we have the word of God being undermined, which is the foundation of our faith, and then we have the, the fact that these churches got themselves yoked up with the government, became their own 501c3 corporate entities, which got their right to exist from the government, was created by the government, and there's a spiritual covering that you take on. And it's not the covering of Jesus Christ. The covering of whatever created you. The government created you. That same spiritual covering is on the church. It's not biblical at all. I believe those are the two main reasons the church is in the shape that it's in. I believe it started back in 1881. It was probably the official start of the Laodicean church era. Their theories were universally accepted by modernist seminaries. The Jehovah Witnesses and other cults bragged about having Bible translations based upon Westcott and Hort. Yeah, they have the New World Translation. That's, that's Jehovah's Witness. That's great common ground to have, you know, with, uh, with that. Compromising evangelicals were suddenly proud of having scholarship accepted by the world. Man, that's, this is about dying to self. You know, having, you know, consider yourself to have no, of, of no reputation. But they wanted to have the scholarship accepted by the world. How pathetic. They used the same Greek text as the Roman Catholic Church. The modernists and the cult. Yeah, you, you're, you're, if you have a Bible and you call yourself a born... The American Standard Bible is considered like the Catholic Bible for today. Well, 
That's the same underlying Greek text. It's the Westcott and Hort Greek text. The same underlying text as the NIV or the Living Bible or the NASB. Same, same stuff. So you have that in common now with the Catholic Church as well as these other overt cults like the, like the Jehovah Witnesses. You have that too in common with them. Do you want that? Do you want to be yoked up with them in that regard? A relative handful of Bible believers refused to accept the Greek text and theory of Westcott and Hort. Such holdouts became an irritation to the scholarly evangelicals. As study on the issue increased, opposition to Westcott and Hort theory grew. Westcott and Hort only no longer seemed an adequate reason for abandoning the King James Bible. The scholarly evangelicals began to react harshly to their King James only critics. Okay, so along with Bishop Edward White Benson, Westcott and Hort founded the Ghostly Guild, this club. The club was designed to investigate ghosts and supernatural appearances. The club was based upon the idea that such spirits actually exist and appear to men. According to the Encyclopedia of Occultism and Parapsychology, the members of the Ghostly uh, Guild would relate personal experiences concerning, concerning ghosts. I mean, it made it into the Encyclopedia of Occultism and Parapsychology. This same club. This club would eventually become the social, the Society for Cyclical Research. According to James Webb in the Occult Underground and W.H. Solter, the SPR, an outline of its history, this club became a major factor in the rise of spiritualism among the elite of English society in the late 1800s. Many leading occult figures belonged to the society. This, so it started out as the Ghostly Guild and it eventually became the Society for Cyclical Research, this club that um, Westcott and Hort founded. And this club became a major factor in the rise of spiritualism among the elite in the English society in the 1800s. Many leading occult figures belonged to the society. Again, we have more rotten fruit. You know, tree is known by its fruit. Well, we got more rotten fruit from, from Westcott and Hort. They also gave us the ghostly guild. Now, you know, evidently they just chose to ignore so many different Bible verses, not appearing, you know, not having anything to do with witchcraft, not uh, using necromancy. These were, these, were, these were things that if you did them in the Old Testament, they were punishable by death. Okay, but... You know, none of that mattered to them. They could care less about what the Bible says. They they don't care about abstaining from all appearance of evil. You know, evil communications corrupt, corrupt good manners. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Oh, no, no, none of that mattered anything to them. None of it. And they invented a Bible that would not condemn their actions. They really wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They went so far as to create their own Bible that would not condemn their own actions. Isn't that convenient? Westcott's son refers to his father's lifelong faith in spiritualism. And I don't mean spiritualism like he's on fire Christian. Spiritualism like in the occult. Archbishop Benson's son referred to Benson in the same way. Communion with the spirits became quite fashionable in the late 1800s in British society. A lot having to do with Westcott and Hort. They made, they made it fashionable and trendy. And hey, these guys were, were um, evangelical, or, or not evangelicals, but they were, you know, Christians in the uh, High Church of England. You know, they were looked up to. Even Queen Victoria, who normally led a responsible Christian life, dabbled in spiritualism. However, it was considered unseemly for church for the Church of England clergyman and Westcott had to keep his ideas somewhat quiet. According to Westcott's son Arthur, Dr. Westcott practiced the communion of the saints. This was a belief that you can fellowship with the spirits of those who have died recently. Necromancy. You think you're talking to the spirit of the dearly departed loved one. You're not. You're talking to a lying, deceiving, deceitful, familiar spirit. A spirit that was familiar with the person that you think you're summoning. That's all it is. It's forbidden in the Bible. It's witchcraft. He openly admitted he was doing this. They even referred to it as the communion of the saints. You have to ask yourself the question, was the Holy Spirit guiding him to do all this? Was the Holy Spirit guiding him to take two corrupt versions of the Catholic uh, Bible and convert them into the revised version of 1881? Was the Holy Spirit convicting him to start these clubs where they... they 
uh, essentially did all, all types of witchcraft practices? Of course not. And don't trust them with your Bible. Bible translator J.B. Phillips also believed in the communion of the saints. He believed that the spirit of C.S. Lewis visited him after his death. Now, maybe his familiar spirit did. I wouldn't deny that. Familiar, not real. C.S. Lewis is burning in hell right now. Unless he got saved on his deathbed, and I don't think he did. In fact, you can read his own writings. and He, he was as unsure about his salvation as, I would say, Westcott and Hort were. And again, we've done whole studies on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. I believe it's like a six-part series. Before you render any opinions about that, please listen to those first. He that judgeth the matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. Proverbs 18, verse 13. So don't judge this matter before you've heard it. But he believed that the spirit of C.S. Lewis visited him after his death. According to Arthur Westcott, Bishop Westcott also had such experiences with spirits. Now, this is, this is of the Westcott and Hort. Bishop Westcott also had such experiences with spirits. His son writes, The communion of the saints seems particularly associated with <clears throat> Peter Burrow, evidently a town. He had an extraordinary power of realizing this communion. Or man, I guess. It was his delight to be alone at night in the great cathedral, for there, could, for there he could meditate and pray in full sympathy with all that was good and great in the past. There he always had abundant company. Westcott's daughter met him returning from one of his customary meditations in a solitary darkness of the chapel of Auckland Castle. She said to him when she saw him, I expect that you do not feel alone. And he said, oh no, he said, it is full. Now what does all that mean that I just said? Westcott wrote that he had experiences with these spirits, this supposed communion of the saints. And it was his delight to be alone at night in the great cathedral, for there he could meditate and pray in full sympathy with all that was good. In other words, he was communing with devils in this cathedral. And he, supposedly he always had abundant company. In other words, these things were manifesting in some way, shape, or form. Whether physically, whether in his mind, I have no idea. But he was, communica he was communicating with devils and demons. Okay? And this is one of his favorite things to do. And he would do it at night, in solitary darkness. Sounds real Christian to me. Either Dr. Westcott's children lied about him, or Dr. Westcott was used, was used to meeting with spirits. Bible believers recognize these spirits as demons. Westcott and Hort both joined a secret society called the Apostles. It was limited to 12 members. Ah, they should have made it 13 and made it a coven. Come on. One of the other members was Henry Sid, Sidwick. He was also stated to have several professors at Trinity College in, into secretly practicing the occult. Westcott, his close friend, was also a professor at Trinity College. Strange company for a Christian teacher and Bible translator. In 1872, Westcott formed a secret society, the Arrhenius Club. Members included Hort, Sidwig, and Arthur Balfour, the future Prime Minister of England. Archbishop Trent and Dean Alford and Archbishop Trent and Dean Alford. I mean, look at this, these high society elite. Today they would be considered overtly involved in the Illuminati. And that's who Westcott hung around with. That's who he kept company with. I mean, a man is known by the company of friends that he keeps, right? Or a woman. That's the type of people that he wanted to be around. And the things that he did, they, they, trying to, you know, with necromancy, the witchcraft, who knows what else went on behind closed doors? This is what they're admitting to. Can you imagine what really happened? Who knows what they got into? If this is what they're admitting to, you know far worse went on. The 1872 Westcott formed, uh, formed this Arrhenius Club. Both Trench and Alfred of this Arrhenius Club would be involved in also the Bible revision work. Yeah, hey, let's just get all the occultists making our Bible. Balfour became famous for his seances. And practices of spiritualism. The Aranus Club would eventually become known as an occult secret society. Westcott's defenders point out that Westcott also eventually dropped out of Aranus. Oh good, he saw the light of day. He repented, yeah. Still, he was certainly allied with the practitioners of the occult in a secret society for a period of time. Well yeah, he got it going. Just like he did the revised version of 1881. And then he just let his father the devil Satan take over. He did his work. He did it well. 
Balfour and Sedwig were involved in several occult organizations, socialism and theosophy, which is what, you know, Madame Blavatsky started, the, the Theosophical Society. How many true Christians have so many friends prominent in the practice of the occult? I mean, do you ask yourself that question. And that these were the two guys that brought us essentially the modern day versions. But it was okay, I guess, for them. They were, they were so spiritual they could get away with it. They gloried in their shame. The Bible says a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. These guys were heretics. They should have been rejected, and their doctrine should have been rejected. The Bible says, wherefore mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. But their own bellies. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. They were serving their own carnal desires and lusts. When it says the belly, that's what it's talking about. And we're supposed to mark them and avoid them and have no fellowship with them. But when you open up one of these modern day Bibles, these perversions, you are having fellowship with Westcott and Horde. And it is that big of a deal. Balfour would also be involved in the founding of the League of Nations. The modern, that, that was the forerunner to the United Nations. Balfour would be involved in the founding of the League of Nations. And in forming a secret society with Cecil Rhodes, the Round Table, and the Council on Foreign Relations. This is who Westcott and Hoare were hanging out with, and buddies with, and having their little secret society meetings. It's like the modern day uh, Bohemian Club that they have. This is, this is the forerunner to that. Cecil Rhodes was a, was, a, was a homosexual, a wicked man. And he hung out with the guy, Balfour, that started the League of Nations, which eventually became the United Nations. How much more corrupt company could you keep? We're not supposed to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Well, that's all they ever did. They were unclean. They weren't saved. They constantly touched the unclean thing, and they loved it. Would Westcott and Hort defenders accept anyone today who had such connections? No. But that was okay, because that was a long time ago, and we'll just forget about it conveniently. They were clearly in contact with people who were familiar with, who were familiar with demonic spirits. There's every reason to suspect that they have also been in contact with these spirits. Well, obviously they were. Based upon their associations, there is no clear reason to reject the suggestion that they were involved in the occult. The balance of the evidence creates, at the very least, a strong suspicion of the occult influence. I'm not going to be that kind. There, there's no doubt. There is absolutely no doubt. I mean, they, they started these clubs. What do you think they, they did it for? To put on a good show? There are fundamentalists who refuse to accept the characterization of Westcott and Hort as liberals, much less occultists. It would be easy to ask at this point if everyone is reading from the same books. How can there be such a difference of opinion about what these men believed and wrote? Well, it's easy, because if you have somebody that's embracing these false versions, they cannot paint these men in anything but a positive light in order to justify their position, in order to justify these new perversions. It is interesting that some men can't face the real record about Westcott and Hort. In fact, some who are quick to attack even minor differences with living preachers will take a blind eye to Westcott and Hort. In other words, they strain at gnats and swallow camels all day long. They're quick to attack minor differences in preachers that are living. But they totally take a blind eye to Westcott and Hort. That's the, that's the norm, isn't it? That's the norm. Why isn't this being taught in the seminaries? This should, be, this should be Bible 101, right here. However, this is easy to understand. Their campaign to replace the King James Bible has been based upon the work of Westcott and Hort only. To admit these men were not trustworthy would be to admit that they have been wrong in a major premise of their entire ministry and the underpinnings of their faith. Because faith is based on the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. What if you're quoting from an NIV? It's perverted. 64,098 less words. Well, maybe it's going to affect your faith. Sure will. Not only is the doctrine polluted, not only has it been leavened, remember Jesus Christ said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is their doctrine. It's been leavened. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect your faith. I don't understand why I just don't feel on fire for God and stuff and 
I just kind of feel wishy-washy. Maybe it's the Bible you're reading. God's not the author of confusion. How are you going to memorize the Word of God when you've got five translations in front of you? What are you going to quote back to the devil? Well, maybe today I'll use the New King James or the Living Bible. Maybe that'll get them good. See what I mean? There's so many things that you can look at here. So, again, let me read this again. To admit these men were not trustworthy, Westcott and Hort, would be to admit that they have been wrong, these seminary teachers in particular, in a major premise of their entire ministry. Ah, this is the crux of the whole truth of the matter, right here. They're too proud and too afraid to admit it. The scorn that they would receive by other men of the cloth. They would be reviled. They would be cast out. They would lose their seminary positions. They would lose the money that came along with it. And the prestige. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. All these highly esteemed seminary professors and theologians and all these guys who attack the King James Bible. They are an abomination in the sight of God. They are destroying the very underpinnings of the faith of Christians. And they're doing it in the most effective way Satan could do it. By corrupting the pastors who then go and corrupt the flocks. Because a pastor is going to corrupt anywhere from 10 to 100 to 1,000 to who knows how many people. By what they learn in seminary. So you know what? It is that big of a deal. It is that big of a deal. It's that big of a deal to God, I believe. Perhaps we must be forced to suspect that some blinding presupposition derives, drives them to prove that Westcott and Hort were not heretics at any cost. It appears that this justification requires only a shallow reading of Westcott and Hort and ignorance of their personal letters and correspondences. Just like C.S. Lewis. Yeah, just read, just, just do a shallow reading of C.S. Lewis and ignore any of his personal letters or correspondences, just like Westcott and Hort, and we'll be able to justify them at, at any cost too. Sure. It's the same deal. Their defenders do not spend any time quoting their personal correspondences. Oh no. Or the biographies written by their sons. Their defenders never recount the testimonies of their conversion because no testimonies exist. In conclusion, Dean... John Bergen was a contemporary and acquaintance of both Westcott and Hort. He was a firm opponent of Westcott and Hort theory, their new Greek text, the revision of the English Bible that they so heavily influenced, in an article entitled The Secret Spanking of Westcott and Hort. <laughs> Bergen wrote, The text of Drs. Westcott and Hort is either the very best which has ever appeared or else it is the very worst. The nearest to the sacred autographs or the furthest from them. There is no room for both opinions. The, like the Bible says, choose whom this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, as Joshua said. Well, it's the same choice you have to make with this. There are no room for both opinions and there cannot exist any middle view. God is not a, a wishy-washy gray God. He's a black and white God. His word, it's either God's word or it's not God's word is the point here. In other words, things that are totally different are not the same. Millions of professing evangelicals have never heard of Westcott and Hort. Nonetheless, their approach to scripture is based upon the theory of Westcott and Hort. All these people that have never even heard of Westcott and Hort they're being guided by them, though, because of the Bibles that they're reading. No matter how many books, professors, colleges, and denominational leaders, these theories are filtered through, the Westcott and Hort theories are filtered through, they are still the work of the devil and Westcott and Hort only. Those who challenge the primacy of the King James Bible in the English-speaking of the English-speaking world depend upon the work of Westcott and Hort. What a great thing to have to hang your hat on and depend on. You are putting your faith in these two occultists, these two devils, that have since went on to be with their father, the devil, in hell. Of course, I don't, the devil's not hell, but it was prepared for him and his angels. Westcott and Hort are not a sufficient basis to reject the Texas Receptus or the King James Bible. Their objectivity, scholarship, and doctrine are at the best corrupted and suspect. There is no reason to believe that they were saved men. There is more reason to believe that they were influenced by the occult than that they are, there is to believe that they were influenced by the Holy Spirit. And if, if the Holy Spirit lived inside them, why weren't they chastened of God? The Bible says, of whom the Lord loveth, he also chasteneth. 
And if you be without chastisement, you're bastards. Well, they proved that they were bastards or illegitimate sons by their actions. How could they do all this stuff, never were converted, came out with these, these totally corrupt texts, participated in all these occult activities, started these occult clubs, and still have the Holy Spirit living inside them? Oh, I guess the Holy Spirit just gave them a get-out-of-jail-free card pass and never convicted them of their sin. No, because the Holy Spirit never lived inside them. That's why. It's, it's obvious. Perhaps the King James-only controversy is misnamed. Perhaps it's really a Westcott and Hort-only controversy, which is really what it should be. Oh, no, no, we want to vilify the KJV. No, no, no. I call it a Westcott and Hort controversy, because that's where the spotlight should be shed. The KJV had already proven itself, as we thoroughly documented here. It had already proven itself. The fruit was already there, and it was good. Are you willing to abandon the historic contributions of the Texas Receptus and the King James Bible for Westcott and Hort? So I'm going to go ahead and stop, stop there for part two, or actually this would be part four, and we'll go to part five next.